ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You know, price of everything's gone up. Fuel, oh, crazy. Two, $2.80, $2.90. Adderall, it's $3.50. On Hammond, which is just there, it's $3.50 a litre for unleaded. They'd, they'd be cutting back on a lot. Very, very basic pantries. In the Torres Strait, where fuel can go for more than $3 a litre, the rising price of grocery staples is driving many residents to desperate measures, bringing frozen packs of meat home in suitcases on flights from Cairns and cutting back on healthy meals. The Queensland Government has announced a $64 million cost of living subsidy for the Torres Strait, Cape and Gulf, but many residents are still in the dark about how it will work. That story soon here on Australia Wide, coming to you from Wadjuk country, Perth. We start today's program with some unusually optimistic and very welcome climate news. One of the world's foremost energy modellers has released a report saying there is hope when it comes to limiting global warming. In 2015, the United Nations Paris Agreement set the goal of keeping the global average temperature well below 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels but with a preferred limit of 1.5 degrees to avoid the most catastrophic consequences. Progress has been looking pretty bleak as emissions continue to rise around the world. But this new modelling says there may well be hope after all. National Energy reporter Daniel Mercer joins me now to break down the details. Dan, firstly, who are Rystad Energy, the folk behind this new modelling? Well, kind of as you mentioned at the top, Alex, they're one of the world's top energy advisors, effectively. They, you know, crunch numbers and do modelling. And they're a firm that comes out of Norway and they have their roots in analysis of Norway's oil and gas industry, effectively. But they have spread, you know, as is the way with these things, to be a global outfit that analyses energy broadly. And increasingly these days, the nexus between energy and climate but they're certainly a you know a highly rated voice uh, and considered fairly sort of pragmatic and straight down the line and for example they're a a go-to collaborator of the likes of the economist so they've got some serious chops in this space and so what does this modeling show well it's also like you mentioned at the top it's it's essentially an upbeat assessment a seemingly rare upbeat assessment of how things are going on the path towards decarbonisation. Um, yeah, Rystad has sort of looked at the investments that have been made in renewable energy in particular uh, and the capacity to make renewable energy, you know, wind power and solar power especially. And they've found that while, you know, emissions are continuing to increase across the globe still, um, a lot of the benefits that are going to come from that renewable energy investment are really about to come in a rush. So we're at a tipping point or a threshold where we've done a lot of the heavy lifting, um, heavy lifting globally to kind of put these supply chains in place and this manufacturing capacity in place. And, you know, the, these manufacturing plants are going to send out into the world ever increasing amounts of solar panels and wind turbines and increasingly batteries and the other types of kit that are going to decarbonize the energy system globally and 
help countries wean themselves off fossil fuels. So I think kind of it's quite easy to be um, swept up in coverage which paints these things in a negative light, but Rystad has really, if anything, kind of um, shown a slightly more up- optimistic light in this instance. Is there anyone else that is backing this up? Are there any other reports like this? Yeah, interestingly, there is. And, and you know, not from what you would consider to be perhaps the the typical source. There's a an outfit called Climate Analytics, which is based in Germany and which is very much in favour of decarbonisation and pro-renewable energy. And it also today has released a report sort of painting a very similar picture, saying that peak emissions could actually happen very soon, as in within the next couple of years, and coal and gas use could actually start to decline uh, within that, or, you know, from that sort of a time frame because of the heavy investments and momentum um, that has been made in those same green, you know, those same green industries and supply chains, wind and solar in particular. And, and what you've kind of, uh, what's worth knowing, I suppose, is that the amount of solar manufacturing capacity that is under construction is mind-boggling. Uh, you know, right now the world has uh, about 250 gigawatts of solar power that is produced annually, but there is under construction um, manufacturing capacity that will be able to pump out 1,200 gigawatts of solar power per year. And that, you know, for a sense of scale, is about 20 times the capacity of Australia's biggest electricity system, the national electricity market which spans, you know, most of the eastern seaboard of the continent. So, you know, these are big numbers involved, and we haven't necessarily seen the benefits or the dividends from them yet, but we will be seeing them very soon. So what is Rystad actually saying, that we will meet those Paris Agreement targets, that we won't exceed 2 degrees Celsius if we can track along this uh, level of renewable development? Yeah, effectively, that the targets are within reach. They've referred to about a dozen technologies that they say are going to be required um, and, you know, will need to be implemented at scale, led by solar but backed by things like wind power and batteries and, um, you know, electric vehicles is another big one that they've pointed out. Um, And, you know, if that can be done and momentum can be maintained and trends can be carried on, then there is, you know, a realistic chance that by 2050 the temperature will not have risen by more than two degrees and it is still within the realms of possibility that the temperature can be kept to a 1.5 degree rise uh, within that sort of time frame. Now, there's a lot of ifs, a lot of buts and caveats, I know, but I think what Rystad is saying is um, the technology to get us there is kind of already there, it's already at our disposal and now it's really just a matter of kind of getting on and um, and building it and delivering it. Is this the first time in recent years that we've seen a projection of a somewhat hopeful nature when it comes to rising climate temperatures? It's a crowded space, Alex, as I'm sure you'd be aware. There's uh, a lot of noise in it and uh, lots of different voices and it's often very contradictory. Um, I mean, for the likes of Rystad, I-, I think it is something of an unusual tone or it's a it's a sort of a bolt from the blue to a certain extent um 
the the predominant coverage and the predominant reporting to date has definitely been a bit more downbeat and sometimes very much understandably. But I think maybe what Reistad is saying is that the worm might have slowly turned. And how's it been received? Has there been any criticism of Reistad's report uh, for this, what is an unusually hopeful projection? (laughs) Look, none that I have seen admittedly, but I'm sure that there would be uh, a million voices out there that might contradict it or offer a different point of view, of course, as I mentioned. I mean, it's a heavily contested space and there's a, a lot of people working in it and um, sometimes they're working at cross-purposes. Uh, but, you know, COP28 is coming up uh, and it starts later this month and rolls into December where a lot of these people and a lot of these players will be congregating and so no doubt we'll hear a lot more about it then. And just finally, Dan, this is a global report, but how does Australia place in this? Are we keeping pace with the rest of the world? I think Australia is sort of on par with the rest of the developed world to a large extent, Alex. Um, You know, Australia's climate ambitions maybe aren't quite as sort of um, high-minded as some of the other countries are, or ambitious, rather, as some of the other countries. But Australia is sort of middle of the pack and, you know, certainly... With respect to some technologies like solar and the adoption of rooftop solar, Australia's way out in front. Indeed we are. Well, it's good to have some good news on this front when often it's not good news. Uh, Daniel Mercer is our national energy reporter. Dan, thanks so much for speaking to Australia Wide once again. Pleasure. Thanks, Alex. ABC Australia Wide. And you are with me, Alex Hyman. It's great to have your company here on Australia Wide. Remember, you can podcast the show or listen back to the program through the ABC Listen app or by visiting the Australia Wide website. Just search for ABC Australia Wide. And you can always email us. We love to hear what's happening in your part of the world. If you think there's a story we should follow, please get in touch. Australiawide.radio at abc.net.au. That's australiawide.radio at abc.net.au. The rising cost of basic essentials has forced many Australian families to rethink what they're spending and cut back where they can. In the Torres Strait and parts of Cape York and far north Queensland, minced meat has reached about $20 a kilogram and diesel can cost more than $3 a litre. The Queensland Government is stepping in with a multi-million dollar subsidy scheme to help these remote communities cope. But there's debate about whether it'll go far enough. Christopher Tester has this story. In a storeroom behind a shop front on one of Thursday Island's main streets, retailer Kelly Beckley is going through her inventory and doing the mental arithmetic that keeps her business afloat. The cost of sea freight to the Torres Strait recently went up by almost 9%, adding extra pressure to those trying to make a living and feed their family here in one of Australia's most remote regions. You know, price of everything's gone up. Fuel, crazy. $2.80... Two ninety, Adderall is three dollars fifty on Hammond, which is just there. It's three dollars fifty a litre for unleaded. Life in the Torres Strait has always been expensive, but locals say the disparity between prices here and in other parts of Australia has widened over the past five years. It's forcing them to make tough choices about what they buy and what they eat. They'd, they'd be cutting back on a lot, on a lot. Very very basic. Pantries, very basic. You know, your rice, and even that's expensive. Your rice, your flour, and your basic meats. Again, it's just probably just chicken or fish or whatever they can get. 
from the sea. Alison Padell is the retail manager at the Thursday Island Pharmacy and she's worried what the high cost of groceries means for the community. Fresh fruit and vegetables and meat are the highest priced products on the island so they're also the first that won't be purchased. They'll be replaced for potatoes, rice, um, more than, uh, you know, they'll forego a salad or fresh vegetables. Alison says when Torres Strait residents travel to the nearest major city in Cairns, they do what they can to stock up. So people will purchase an extra bag and fill it with groceries because it's cheaper to pay for an extra bag than it is to have it sent up on C-Swift, which is our local freight provider. You'll also see people with cold and, or cold, cold bags and they'll carry them on as well and they'll have fruit, vegetables or meat inside cold bags. Freight company C-Swift says its 8.9% increase in charges in September is actually reasonable given the rate at which its own costs are rising. The Queensland Government is preparing to introduce a $64 million subsidy in the new year to help communities in the Torres Strait, Northern Peninsula area of Cape York and the Gulf of Carpentaria cope. It'll apply a flat discount of 5.2% at the cash register on certain eligible healthy groceries like fresh produce, dairy and meat. Other items including white goods, fuel and household items won't be discounted. Community Enterprise Queensland is the region's major retailer and its CEO Michael Sykes says the decision to keep the subsidy scheme to essential food staples is a good one because it'll allow the government funding to go further. But communities are concerned the subsidy won't do enough to help and they want the Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk to review the scheme. Robbie Sands is Mayor of Kawanyama and Chair of the Torres Cape Indigenous Council Alliance. If governments are truly... Um, wanting to address the closing the gap measures, um, then they need to work with us. Um, our, our own research indicated that there needed to be a $43 million per annum investment, but um, that may be too far-reaching. Um, so we're asking the Premier to release the Deloitte report um, to us as, as a collective um, so we can um, see what methodology they got down to the 5.2%. So we're asking the state government to come back to the party and sit down with us. We gladly accept the, the $64 million though um, and we're hoping that it's going to be ongoing and, and, and sit down with us and listen to our concerns. Robbie Sands there from the Torres Cape Indigenous Council Alliance ending that report from Christopher Tester. ABC Australia wide. The pilot will dump fuel and then light the afterburners and it just shoots out a massive flame of lit-up jet fuel. Yeah, it's a party trick. On ABC Radio. Aside from the Northern Territory, Queensland has the lowest home ownership rate in Australia at 63.5%. In a bid to woo voters, the state opposition has pledged to lift it. And now the Queensland Government has announced it will double the first home buyers grant, making the housing crisis a hot election topic less than 12 months out from the poll. But how will the policy work in reality? And will it do anything to fix the problems surrounding the lower home ownership rate? From the Sunshine Coast, Chloe Shamiki reports. Catherine Colgan dreams of owning her own apartment. But the 30-year-old postgraduate student who lives in Townsville fears it'll be another decade before she has enough money for a 20% deposit. I'm constantly saving, but it doesn't feel like it's going anywhere. It's... Never more than a few hundred at a time. As she watches home values rise, that deposit seems even further out of reach. Having to 
take money out of the savings I would have had for that um, is becoming a more frequent occurrence at the moment. The LNP has vowed to lift home ownership in Queensland to the highest in the country if elected under a 10-year housing plan. Meantime, the government has doubled the first home owner grant from $15,000 to $30,000. But the new supersized grant isn't a one-size-fits-all opportunity and conditions apply. The government said the $30,000 should not be relied upon to cover the deposit as it would be paid at different times depending on how and when an application is made. It also must be used within a year of purchasing a home, so it won't get Ms Colgan into home ownership any sooner. In fact, economists say such incentives may actually inflate prices and make housing more expensive for people like Ms Colgan who aren't yet ready to take the leap. CoreLogic's head of research, Tim Lawless. These sort of policies tend to influence demand, but it probably also tends to push up prices as well. So in terms of housing affordability, this isn't really a medium to long-term fix. It's more of a band-aid. What we'll probably also find that with the housing construction sector already extremely tight, potentially this could just add further demand into a sector of our economy that's already at capacity. Uh, we know that uh, uh, residential construction costs or that the cost of a new home is the biggest part of inflation. It has the highest weighting in, uh, in the inflation basket. So any additional construction cost pressures that come through that might push prices higher could also have an inflationary impact. To claim the grant, you must be buying or building a new home valued up to $750,000. The home can be a house, a duplex or a townhouse. The grant also applies to a granny flat built on a relative's land. But in that case, who owns the granny flat? It exists as a secondary dwelling on the land owned by the relative. The first homeowner grant recipient will have a right to occupy the granny flat. But as Matthew Raven from the Queensland Law Society explains, the granny flat would belong to the owner of the land unless it was a movable dwelling. So whatever happens to the land, the granny flat goes with it. So if it's sold by the owner, the buyer would take title to the granny flat Um, If they die, then it would go in accordance with their will. And if a mortgagee stepped in to exercise parasol, then they would would be able to sell the land, including the granny flat, to someone else. The Queensland government says up to 12,000 first-home buyers can claim the grant before it expires in June 2025. That story from Chloe Shimicki on the Sunshine Coast. You're listening to Australia Wide. I didn't know Melbourne much. I knew where the racecourses were. I'm making signs for the sleepy lizards. Basically less eggs this year than what we would have expected. The houses that are near the edge of the bush, they might encounter a snake up to four times a year, a death adder. Um, Just, yeah, see how it goes. On ABC Radio. And finally, here on Australia Wide, let's head to the Upper Hunter, where the Matildas effect is still in full force. The success of the Tillies earlier this year has seen a surge of women pulling on the boots and playing football. Now, for the first time in five years, one club in rural New South Wales has enough players to field a women's team. But despite a supportive community, there are still a lot of challenges for women and girls who want to play sport in regional Australia. In Musselbrook... Laurice Dixon has the story. All right, just to speed it up. Go. 
The Women's World Cup was won for the history books. And in Australia, it was all thanks to one group of women. They may not have secured the cup, but the Matildas have had a lasting impact on women's sport in Australia. And the hype has reached grassroots clubs, like the Musselbrook Eagles. It's a Wednesday night, and down at a sports ground in Musselbrook, the Eagles women's squad are getting ready to train. It's a lot of fun up here. You may be able to hear the screams of enjoyment in the background. Douglas Thompson is the women's coach, and tonight he's running drills. We've had of the 90-ish registered players, I believe, well over a third, a third over 30 odd, are uh, female, and some really good players in there too. It's been really cool. All right, how about we go game game scenario? Just to speed it up, Rose, run! In northern New South Wales, just under 20,000 female players signed up to play for a club in 2023. That's a 20% increase on last year. In the Arbor Hunter region, one in five football players is a woman, and that's expected to increase off the back of the World Cup. In Musselbrook, they're already seeing it. They're fielding their first women's team after years of not having the numbers. 2018 maybe, might have been the last one. Um, Some of the women we've got here, it's been longer since they've played. Some of them haven't played for the club at all. Yeah, at least five or six years, I think, since we've had a women's team. There was, like, only two players on my team that were girls, including me. For 16-year-old Tegan Edwards, up until now, she's only ever played with the boys. Uh, It's a bit difficult with, like, not having as many girls to talk to. With all the boys, like, they don't really want to pass to us, so having more girls is a little bit better, I'd say. Have people that you can count on on the field that won't discriminate against you, I guess. (laughs) Even though women's sport has come so far in the last few years and there's more interest in playing, it's still not easy for female athletes to get a fair go. There are these barriers for rural women who want a local team to socialise, to stay fit and maybe pull on the boots for the first time. But it's even harder if you want to go all the way to become the next Hayley Rasso or Sam Kerr. Well, I've been playing ever since I was five or six. 16-year-old Sophie Marie Edwards is one of the really good players Douglas was talking about. She's come down to train with the new Musselbrook Eagles women's team to keep her fitness up. I, I love it. I love the girls and I love the community like around it. It's very welcoming and I just love it. But Sophie has big dreams. She wants to play at an elite level. But to pursue that, she's got to make the trek from Musselbrook to Warners Bay. It's like two hours in a car, three times a week maybe. And I get to socialise with my dad sometimes. But other than that, I normally just have fun while I'm there. I, I live in the moment, like everyone says. And for the moment, it's worth that, what, six hours in the car every week to go to Newcastle? Yep, I, I'd say it's worth it. People can see these community teams are the door in to getting women a love of and a career in professional sport. And clubs are taking this more seriously and spending money to remove these barriers. They're upgrading change rooms, highlighting female achievements and investing in better gear and equipment. With the World Cup, especially being in Australia, there is a lot of light on the female game at the moment, uh, deservedly so. 
So now is a great time for players to be pushing forward on potentially the next step. It was just amazing to watch it on TV and the impact it had on me, I think I would say it had the best impact on me. It made me want to up my skill level and whatever, my fitness levels as well. I want to really play for my country because that's also my next big dream that I want to do. I want to make myself proud of myself, even though I've already done it, but I want to make myself even more happy. Like, I just want to put a smile on my face and my parents' faces. That was Sophie Marie Edwards ending that story by Larice Dixon in The Upper Hunter. And to hear more on that, you can listen to the latest episode of Newcastle Cast on the ABC Listen app. And that is Australia-wide for this Wednesday evening. I'm Alex Hyman. Thanks so much for your company. Sinead Mangan will be back in the presenter's chair tomorrow. I hope you have a wonderful evening. Cheerio. Say, listen.